Amen. Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. We'll pick up our reading in verse 19 and read through verse 23. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Hear now the inspired word of God. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we request, requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we look into your word, we would simply ask that you would be pleased to bless the preaching, that, Father, to the end, that it would accomplish every purpose for which you send it. And we pray specifically, Father, that as it goes forth, that it would edify the saints, that it would build up your church, that sinners would be converted. But above all else, Father, we pray that you would receive glory and the name of Christ would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, apparently there's a new fad sweeping the internet. And that is people set up a camera, hidden camera, and they get alone with maybe their significant other or some close friend. And then they feign seeing something that frightens them to frighten, see the reaction of the other person. And it is hysterical to see just one person pulling their hair. What? What? What do you see? And it's, it's sweeping the Internet. We are a strange people. <laughs> that seeing someone frightened makes us laugh. And the greater the fright, the more we laugh and the harder we laugh. But there are some frightening things that are not funny. I've looked into the face of a person who has received death threats. And when you see the sheer terror in their eyes, it's nothing to laugh about. This one man that I dealt with had been arrested for dealing a large quantity of drugs, and to stay out of jail, he agreed to testify against his co-conspirators. And he received numerous legitimate death threats. And every time he had to appear in court, the security was elevated to an all-time high. But he was still frightened because the men who threatened him were, in fact, ruthless and extremely capable of killing him. I'll never forget the look in his face the day the trials were over and we turned him over to the U.S. Marshals. He was being 
relocated in the federal witness program. And he was relieved. As I looked into his eyes, I could see the relief. He didn't have to keep looking over his shoulder for the man with the gun who would take his life. As I was reading this scripture in Daniel, I was reminded of that man. And I wondered, those false counselors who came before the king, they, they received death threats. Remember, they were facing an impossible situation. There was no way they could complete the king's request. And even, they even complained that no king had ever made such a request of his counselors before. And then they insisted that they could interpret the dream if the king would only tell them what the dream was. But the king remained firm and threatened death. And not a quick death either. He, he says they were to be torn limb from limb. You can understand fear in their circumstances. Now also take note at this point that Daniel is not involved so far. But that's all about to change. We can ask the question, why wasn't Daniel and his three friends involved? Well, we're not told explicitly in scripture, but... I think the obvious answer is they were still trainees, so to speak. They hadn't finished their three years of training in the way of the Chaldeans. So they did not make appearances before the king in such important matters as this. But one thing we can say about old Nebuchadnezzar, he was an equal opportunity executioner. So when the decree goes out to kill all the counselors, Daniel and the other captives are included. Verses 12 and 13. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So at this point, now Daniel and the three are included in the decree. A couple of points to note here, first, the king is furious, the scripture says. Now, of course, over the course of our studying this book, you will notice that Nebuchadnezzar is a man who, I think it's fair to say he was guided by his emotions or feelings. And when he gets furious, he is as ruthless as any despot in the history of the world. And this is not the only time he gets angry. We know that Daniel had impressed him, but that has no bearing on his decision to execute him anyway. The second thing I want to notice in the text is that presumably the king was already dissatisfied with his counselors. This is not just a one-time occurrence. And in verses 8 and 9 we read, the king replied, I know for certain you're bargaining for time. I mean, he says, I know for certain. Why? He, he knows them. And then down in verse 9, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. So the king had, at the very least, suspected that these were, in fact, charlatans. 
The text also indicates that soon as the wise men left the king's throne room, they made themselves scarce. We don't see anything about them in the next few verses. The text also indicates, well, let me put, well, you know what, let me put it this way. In thinking about it, that's probably the wisest move they made all day, was to make themselves absent from the king's throne room. But there's a third point or observation that I think is important. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah find themselves on the wrong end of a decree to take their lives. And here's the point. It was for nothing they had done. They were completely innocent. And yet they too are included in with the wise men and they're slated for execution. As Christians, you and I may very well find ourselves facing charges through no fault of our own. And that, the possibility of that is going up every day in this country. So what do you do when that happens? Well, there's no stock answer, no one size fits all, but the general answer is very simple. Go to the word of God. Look for principles in the wisdom of Proverbs. Look for examples from such men as Daniel, men such as Joseph, the Apostle Paul, who stood facing unwarranted charges. And that's just to name a few. But the bottom line is, God may be calling you not only to endure trouble, but perhaps even lay down your life like John the Baptist or Stephen. But there's also a fourth point of observation in this encounter. Notice the different response of the wise men and Daniel. The wise men recognize their inability to answer the king, so they make themselves scarce. You can only imagine what was going through their minds. You realize there was no Babylonian witness protection program. So they were distraught, nowhere to turn. But when Daniel hears about the king's decree, what does he do? He runs to the king. And this is before God had even revealed the dream to him. So the move that Daniel makes is a, is a bold move. The king had the power to execute him right on the spot. But again, we, at this point, I mean, this is only the sixth message in Daniel. But we should not be surprised by the actions of Daniel here. Remember, we spent a couple of weeks laying the groundwork for our study in Daniel, just some introductory, uh, in, some infer, introductory information. And as part of that study, we examine Daniel's character. And based upon what we learn, we can understand why Daniel responds as he does. When approached by the king's commander, Arioch, Daniel is not in the least bit intimidated. His character and demeanor had garnered for him favor with the king's staff, including the chief bodyguard. That's an amazing thing. 
Remember, Ariok is on his way to kill Daniel and his friends. And instead, when he meets him, he explains to Daniel what the circumstances are. And then agrees to bring him to the king for an audience. We don't know exactly what Daniel said to the king, but we do know the essence. Basically, give me some time, and I will declare the dream to you. Now, what's interesting here, too, is the wise men had made basically the same request. They made the request. The king is angered and said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Daniel made the request, and he gets, okay. <laughs> you can have a little time. Don't you find that interesting? You may be saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Didn't we cover these verses last week? Uh, only partially, which is why we're going through them again for looking at different points. We introduced these verses, but there is so much to learn from them. So what does Daniel do? And he's granted his request of more time. His first response, I need to talk to my friends. He, he says, I need to talk to other brothers in Christ. And first he tells them what's going on. Remember, they're in the dark about all that has happened. So Daniel fills them in on the circumstances. And what's their next course of action? We pray. Notice what doesn't happen. No escape plans. No running and hiding from the king's guards. Just good old-fashioned prayer. And we're even told the essence of what their prayer was. It was a twofold prayer. Look at verse 18. So that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning the mystery. And so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Notice that first. They're praying that God would have compassion and reveal the mystery. There's the essence of it right there. Remember, Daniel had told the king he just needed some time and he would reveal the dream. How do you think Daniel approached this prayer meeting? Oh, Lord, I hope you can answer this prayer. He went with confidence. This was his primary concern. So he goes with confidence and lays the request that God would have compassion. Second, that God would spare their lives. How would you have liked to have been in that prayer meeting? We're not told how long it, happened, how long it lasted, but I'm going to tell you exactly how long it lasted. Long enough to accomplish its purpose. <laughs> Sometimes I think we violate the Lord's command not to pray like the Gentiles. And we just go on and on with vain and meaningless repetition. Which Christ specifically told us in Matthew 6, don't, don't pray that way. He 
says, and when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. But I'll tell you this, I'll make you bet that, that prayer, those prayers were fervent prayers, passionate prayers. And, and they were particular prayers. Show us the mystery. Deliver us from evil. And look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The prayer is answered. And again, we see the character of Daniel come through. Before he does anything, you would think that, I've got it. Run to the king. I'm going to save the day. But before he does anything else, he returns to prayer and praises God. Amen. He blesses God and prays a prayer of thanksgiving. And I want to look at that prayer. But just before we do, this is our introduction to Daniel's prayer life. One of the things we know for sure about Daniel is he was a man of prayer. There's a, an old Sunday school song, it's sung to the tune of Nearer My God to Thee. Daniel was a man of prayer, daily prayed he three times. And it goes on, it's a cute little song. But that's what we, think, that's what we know about Daniel. So we're not surprised based upon the godly character we've seen so far that Daniel, the very first thing he does when he gets the vision, he gets on his knees and he prays to God and thanks him for answering the prayer. For clarity purposes, we're going to look at the prayer in three parts because I believe this is very instructive for us. Part one of the prayer, verses 20 and 21. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. The first part is a prayer of adoration and focusing on two attributes of the characteristics of God, his wisdom and his power. <clears throat> Not surprising. These are the attributes of God that Daniel was relying on for his answer. God's wisdom is what gives Daniel the hope of an answer to the dilemma that the king has put the wise men into. Let's go back to the dilemma once again. The king insists that the wise men tell him of the, the, the dream first before the interpretation. Let's, let's look at it one more time. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. That's the impossible mission we addressed last week. 
But the wise men accurately assess the situation. They can't come up with the answer, but they assess the situation. No man on earth can accomplish this. It's utterly impossible. And then they, once again, accurately assess, who could answer? Only a God. I'm sure they didn't know what they were saying. But there is only one God. The God in heaven. And he is able to relate the dream to Daniel. Which he has now done. So Daniel gives praise to God for his infinite wisdom. God's wisdom is one of those basic, essential doctrines of God. In fact, A.W. Tozer wrote a classic book in the middle of the 20th century called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he's got a chapter in there called The Wisdom of God. And he wrote this. Listen carefully to how Tozer describes this. The idea of God as infinitely wise is at the root of all truth. It is a datum of belief necessary to the soundness of all other beliefs about God. Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise, and as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to them, to do them, could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by finite creatures. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So says A.W. Tozer. Second attribute Daniel gives praise for is his power. And I'll include that in a broader category of his sovereignty. It's a major theme of the book. And we'll see it recurring numerous times throughout the book of Daniel. And since this is a, a book also about a study in prayer, we'll be addressing the relationship of God's sovereignty in prayer. You realize the natural inclination of man is to hate the doctrine of sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Because in our depraved hearts, we want to be sovereign over our own lives. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is the poster boy for craving self-autonomy and sovereignty. We'll get to that in a few chapters, but look how Daniel prays for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times, the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. 
when I was writing this, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave Nebuchadnezzar to chapter 4. But I can't. Because after Nebuchadnezzar is released from his insanity and God has restored him, listen to these words of Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody else, no other human, I don't think, has said it as well. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's the definition of his sovereignty. Says it all. Part two of the prayer. Daniel acknowledges that through wisdom, though wisdom, power, and sovereignty belong to God, he communicates or imparts some of those attributes to mankind. Obviously not in perfection or to the same degree, but look at verses 21 and 22. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. According to the wisdom in Proverbs, it is the wise man, the righteous man, who acknowledges that God is the one who gives these gifts to mankind. Daniel knew these things and he relied on God for all things. But Daniel knew that ultimately God was in charge of all things and he placed his trust in him. Third part of the prayer. Daniel thanks and praises God for imparting these gifts to him personally. Look at verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Notice the progression of this prayer. He begins with addressing God as almighty God, the only wise God, the all-powerful God, the sovereign one, the only one and true God who deserves to be praised and worshipped for just, just for who he is. There is none like him, nor can even come close to his holiness. Then he praises God for being active and directing the affairs of the world. That means nothing is random, but everything is the product of God's decree. And he works things out providentially in time and in history. That means that everything that happens is working out the plan and purpose of God flawlessly. He raises up kings and kingdoms, casts them down according to his will alone. And that is why the Christian is never in a hopeless situation because God is working all things together for the good of his church and for his own glory. But in this last part of the prayer, Daniel acknowledges that God cares about each individual. He gives gifts, not just in general, but to individuals. So Daniel praises God for giving him the gifts of wisdom and power. And notice the answer to the prayer is specific as well. Verse 23. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us 
the king's matter. Boldness and yet humility on the part of Daniel, and they're not mutually exclusive. Arrogance and, humil arrogance and humility are exclusive, but Daniel is bold and humble as his request to Almighty God is answered. One quick note. When you pray, don't be afraid to pray for specifics. In two weeks, we're beginning a series on Wednesday evening prayer meeting on prayer, and it will answer many, many questions about prayer, and I would recommend many of you come. But I'm compelled to address one aspect of prayer in, in Daniel this morning. As we have mentioned, mentioned, Daniel focuses on God's sovereignty and prayer. Soon as you start putting those two concepts together, Sovereignty. God is sovereign, but pray. We're always asked this question. If God is sovereign, if he has decreed all things that will happen and his decree is unchangeable, then why pray? Well, let's begin with a more basic question before we answer that. What is prayer? Prayer is designed that God should be honored. God requires of us that we should indeed recognize and acknowledge who he is. And unfortunately, most of the teaching in the church on prayer today is focused on man's perspective of praying. Prayer should begin with an accurate assessment of who God is. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is God Almighty, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, says Isaiah 57, 15. And God requires that we should worship him. Prayer is an act of worship. In prayer, we prostrate ourselves spiritually before almighty God. Remember, Christ referred to the temple as a house of prayer. We honor God through our prayers by acknowledging complete and utter dependence upon him for all things. Second, prayer is appointed by God for our spiritual blessing. It's a means for our growth in grace. Prayer is designed to humble us, and therefore we must be in the right attitude to grow spiritually. Remember, God gives grace to the humble. It is how we exercise our faith. It's a demonstration of our love, of our love Psalm 116.1 says. It teaches us the value of the blessings that God gives to us. It causes us to rejoice as we see God give us all the blessings that we enjoy. Third, it is God's appointed method for us to seek from him the things we need and petition him on behalf of others. This does not mean we are trying to persuade God to do something that he doesn't want to do. Martin Luther said it so well. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. God requires that his gifts be sought after. This does not mean that we are informing God about something he doesn't know about. Jesus tells us not to pray like the heathen because our father knows what you need before you even ask. But that doesn't mean you don't ask. 
And then God requires that he be thanked for his gifts after we receive them. So then, if God is sovereign, why pray? Well, I could sum this up very quickly with one answer. The answer is he commands it. But there are more reasons than that. We're told, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Luke 18.1, Jesus was telling them a parable to show them at all times that they ought to pray and not to lose heart. At all times. Second, prayers are effective. They do accomplish things. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. And James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, 15. And the prayer offered in faith will raise, restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplish much also why should we pray Jesus was a man of prayer Jesus is our example for all of life so if Jesus spent all this time in praying in fact if you, let me as you're reading through the New Testament especially the four Gospels the Apostles frequently couldn't find Jesus you'll find it almost every time that he was missing they found him alone in prayer. Did Jesus engage in meaningless activities? I don't think so. Remember, prayer is not intended to induce God to change or alter his purpose, nor is it meant to persuade him to form new purposes. John, 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. But also, and this is an important one, prayer is communion with God. We talk to God in prayer and he talks to us back through his word. Effective communication. And one of the results of this communion with God is that our thoughts become conformed with his thoughts. Our wills become in subjection to his will. And that results in answered prayers. See, God has not only decreed that certain events shall happen, but he has decreed the means and the method. Just like salvation. We know that God has decreed who will be saved, but you need to preach the word. Same thing with prayer. Interesting. The day that I had turned that man over to the U.S. Marshals, I thought that was it. I'd never see the man again. That's the way the program works. But in God's providence, several years later, a legal issue developed one of the cases in which he testified, and he was called back to testify. And we wound up in the same room in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, when he saw me, and I wasn't sure how he was going <laughs> to receive me, when he saw me, he ran over, gave me a big bear hug, and thanked me. He said, you saved my life. He said the day he was arrested was the turning point for a new life for him. So he thanked me pro profusely. 
And I had occasion to look into his eyes. And they had gone from dread to happiness. I wonder if the wise men of Babylon thanked Daniel for saving his li their lives. I think you'll see as we go through they did not. But Daniel immediately praises and thanks God in his beautiful prayer, which is an example for us. Christian, is praise and thanksgiving a part of your regular prayer life? You spend time not just asking for the things like a Christmas list, but just adoring our Savior, who gave us the greatest gift of all. It should be because in Christ we have passed from death into life. Are we as grateful as Daniel was? If you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm going to take the analogy. You have a death threat hanging over your head. This is no meaningless threat. The threat comes from God himself. You need to repent of your sin and be removed from death unto life in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Confess Jesus as Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you once again. And Father, as we've seen Daniel's prayer and how important it is, May we be prayers, even as Daniel was. I pray, Father, for anyone today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. That, Father, that you would take away their stony heart, give them that heart of flesh, that they might repent and believe. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.